Pages of Pim Better Podcast. Greetings, Voyagers, and welcome to the Voyages of Tim Vetter Podcast. This is episode number 231. And this one was recorded remotely while I am here in the sweltering heat in Brooklyn, and my guest is out in Seattle. Her name is Selena Whitaker Paquiette, and she is in a band called Night Train. Night Train is a female-fronted punk band from the Seattle area that I was clued into by a gentleman named Ernie from St. Pete in Florida. Ernie had heard the Tampa episode that I did about punk in the 80s down in that area, and he had previously lived in Seattle, and he's like, you need to check out all this stuff. And he told me about a whole lot of cool stuff in Montana that'll hopefully come in the future as well. But... He let me know that Selena was involved in a lot of things. And one of those was the MLK house, the Milky Way house in Seattle. That is a home that was also a show venue for house shows for bands. And they put on an annual festival called Hoodstock. Seems like somebody actually copied their name because there was like a jam band festival that I saw called Hoodstock, like I guess near Mount Hood or something like that. But nope, this is strictly punk music. And as she mentioned in our conversation, lately they're focusing on bands with folks of color and people in the LGBTQ community. There's a need for these type of venues all over the place. And the reason for that is there are still venues that are 21 plus. There's a lot of like, pay-to-play stuff that goes on where bands have to sell their own tickets just to be able to play a show. There's a lot of grimy stuff in the business that even makes its way down to the DIY level. And so to have a, a venue in a house like this that is inclusive of all types of bands and gives them a space and a platform is something that I think is really important. And so I was happy to pick her brain about her time playing in Night Train and running the festival and about the Seattle scene. There's a story I'd like to do in the future about a band called Bam Bam that was fronted by somebody named Tina Bell. If you haven't heard of her, like I hadn't heard of her, she's often referred to as the godmother of grunge. And I didn't even know that. You'd think of people like Chris Cornell or Kurt Cobain but she predated them. In fact, someone from Bam Bam went on to play in Soundgarden. So I'm really interested in the the deep, rich history of these local music scenes because there's so much stuff that hasn't made it out to sort of the collective national conscious. uh, And I think it's important for people to hear it. So I was happy to share her story. I'm going to have a song for you that will play us into the conversation. And I did want to mention that our sound quality wasn't the best recording remotely. We fixed a couple things after like the first four minutes or so, but not the most crystal clear in this one. Still a great conversation, so thanks for, uh, for sticking with us throughout this. Okay, the song that I'm going to play for you is Huntress by Night Train, and that will bring you directly into my conversation with Selena. You can run, but you can't hide. 
All right, cool. Well, first of all, thank you for doing this. It's uh, a real honor and pleasure to get to talk to you today. So thank you. Thank you for asking me. So I should probably explain, I am not from Seattle. I've right. been to Seattle once. <laughs> it was to see a show. I was on tour. It was 14 years ago, so it was an art space. I don't remember exactly where. But recently, a gentleman had reached out to me because he heard an episode I had done about the punk scene in the 80s in Tampa Bay, Ybor City area of Florida. And his name is Ernie. I'm assuming he used to live in Seattle because he was like, hey, here's all this great Seattle punk history that you have to check out. And he mentioned the house that we'll get into and he mentioned Night Train. And so I've done some research and I was like, wow, this seems like a fascinating story. I would love to talk to someone. And that is how I got to you here today. Great. So, uh, Selena, were you born and raised in Seattle? I was. Yep, I'm born and raised. I um, did live abroad. I spent some years in um, um, California. So my childhood was spent um, mostly in California and then some in here, but I've spent the last um, 30 plus years here in Seattle. Okay. And... What were your experiences like, you know, just generally growing up in Seattle? Did you, uh, was it a, a good place to grow up? It was. I, yeah. Um, I had sort of a diff- difficult childhood, but um, in terms of being in Seattle, it um, felt like a, a good place. I mean, it's, it's a beautiful city. Um, and then uh, when I was a child, it was still very um, small, like, you know, it was like Mayberry with skyscrapers. <laughs> mm. um, so not very cosmopolitan as it is now. Did you get into theater at a young age or were you into music first? Um, I did both. I was in my school, I did choirs and then I was in my um, high school vocal jazz group as well, well as the theater group. And then I did professional theater um, starting in my early teens. Okay. What was your, your first exposure to music, either in your home, through your parents, or through friends? Um, definitely in my home. My grandfather was a singer. Like I said, I was doing choir, um, I, you know, of course, in the church, starting out with church choirs and things like that. Um we, my um, mom played music constantly. I mean, it was almost 24-7 we listened to music, more so than watching TV. Uh, do you remember specific, <clears throat> specifically some favorites that she had? Do I remember a specific? Uh, specific artists from your youth that mom might have had on? Um, Gil Scott Heron. Um... Earth, Wind, Fire, um, Temptations, uh, Barry White. (laughs) (laughs) You know, definitely old school classics. (laughs) So then what was... Older stuff too, like The Platters, um, all the Shy Lights. (laughs) I loved them. Um... Yeah, there, there was some older things. Nat King Cole, my mom liked Nat King Cole. So you mentioned a lot of real classic music. Um, what was your entryway into the world of like punk and alternative music? Um, well, having a theater background and then being exposed to you know a lot of different people, I went to a predominantly white high school. So rock prevailed. (laughs) And then, um, but what really turned me was um, a concept project where um, it was a theatrical piece and they were putting together um, a rock band of women of color and they didn't want us to have any real strong instrumental background. They wanted to be able to assign the instruments 
and we go off and learn how to play them and create music and become this band. And that was actually how Night Train formed um, as a concept band for stage production. And the stage production, um, it was a eight month, nine month commitment. And we were given like, I think we were given three lessons on our instrument. Wow. And um, that was it. And we were immediately sent out to perform and we performed house parties and um, some um, theatrical venues. Um, But it was, you know, mostly just the whole, they were recording our experience and sort of taking notes from that to create the stage production. So the stage production was kind of okay, but everyone loved the band and the music. So this was in... We stayed a band and changed our name and became Night Train. We were called Hot Grits originally. Hot Grits. Hot Grits. (laughs) (laughs) So then you knew everyone in the band already in high school? You had already formed relationships? No, no. Again, this was a theatrical um, show where we auditioned. Oh. So we were complete strangers. Wow. Okay. So... You were living in really like the mecca of what we've all come to know as grunge music. Uh, Some of the most popular bands from that genre, from that era, came out of Seattle and came out of Washington. Uh, Was there any influence from those bands or were there any like specific local bands that you drew influence from? Um, Yeah, you know, because I... I had a lot of friends who were very much into the local scene and, you know, so I was very much aware of Pearl Jam, Soundgarden, um, Nirvana. Um, and I liked, you know, certain songs from each of the groups. Um, so yeah, I definitely had exposure to what was going on and the, what was, you know, the local hot bands, um, head in the heart came out later. Um, So I was aware, I knew what the genre was, but what really drew me to the punk aspect was just the anything goes, the whole um, experimental freedom of that genre of music of, you know, nothing has to have a rhyme or reason. You know, it's more of just being true to who you are and true to how you want to express yourself. And, and it felt really freeing. And especially when you're struggling with learning an instrument and realizing that that wasn't the most important thing is being able to play your instrument, you know, with impeccable musicianship. Yeah. Um, some of the, our original songs are some of my favorites, you know, and then after our second CD is definitely really polished and, you know, all of a sudden we were musicians. <laughs> yeah. How long between that performance did you start like recording a demo and, and putting out stuff? Um, almost immediately we did. Um, well, so in that whole year we started Hoodstock, the festival, and, and I think we put out our first EP. So almost immediately. Um, we like 2007 and we were sort of formed in 2006. Okay. What was the situations with, uh, venues and all ages venues, um, at the time that you first started playing shows? What, were there enough spaces for people to play? There was the underground sort of, um, venues, which were the house parties, um, and the houses had, you know, special names or whatever. Um, so there was that. And then there were art spaces, um, which were awesome, you know, um, art venues that then would also do music on the weekends and have, um, you know, various types of bands, different genres. Um, most of them were really open to that. And so if you had an art space you really liked, you could just say, hey, can we do a show in here and sell some tickets at the door and we'll give you this much from it? And they were like, sure. <laughs> so, you know, as long as things were kept orderly. 
So who in the band or was it everyone that started the, I don't know if you say Milky Way or MLK Way house? Um, me, this, it's my home. So it's my house. Was that the house you grew up in or you moved into that when you were older? Um, no, it's a house I bought. I bought this house. Okay. And, um, um, and because of our address, it was obviously Milky Way. I'm on Martin Luther King Jr. Way, so Milky Way House. Yeah, there's a there's a musical connection to that street too. I was maybe reading a bit about how there had been a like a radio DJ who had pushed for that street to be named MLK Way. Is that true? Yes, um, yes. There, I believe it was a, a radio DJ who pushed for the name change. That was a while ago. Um, that was when I was a teenager. It used to be Empire Way, <laughs> and now, and then it became a Martin Luther King Way. Ah, okay, okay. Did, when you bought the house, did you know that you also wanted to have it as a venue right away? No, no. Uh-uh. I was um, married with children, and um, or actually, when I bought the house, um, I was um, expecting. And um, no, it, it, no, that was the farthest. Being in a rock <laughs> band, it, all of that, that was the farthest from my mind. So um, the, It never occurred to me that that would be something I would do to try to, to pick up an instrument at a late age and, um, and, and then be in a band. So how did that come, and ab- come about then? Was there, a, <laughs> was there a need for a space, a need for a community center? Oh, in terms of how... Hoodstock? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, definitely, because as we started performing, um, it was apparent that you didn't make very much money. It felt like we would have these shows where the, they would be packed. And then at the end of the night, we would be handed like 100 bucks to split between four band members. And, we, you know, we just couldn't understand it. And you know, all the money that had to come off the top, you know. Um, and so it just, you know, it, and it's not um, just the city, but anywhere it's really difficult to make money as a musician and especially in the club venues because because of so much um, money coming off the top. So that was part of it. And then also um, if you're a new band, you get, the most horrible positions and the hardest shows to try to sell. So there, so the venue will offer you a show on a Tuesday night or a Monday, Wednesday, you know, something like that, where it's really difficult to get people to want to come out a and stay up late and spend money. And sometimes it would be after, you know, another show. So, you know, your show couldn't even start until 10 or 11. And, and so, um, the idea came for up and coming bands to have an opportunity to play in front of an audience and to have the money go to them Mm. so that, you know, the audience that, you know, the, the audience is literally paying the band. Yeah. And it seems like maybe it's also like a, an all day community event with barbecues and like zine selling and distros and stuff like that. It is exactly that. Ah, okay. Um, are you still running Hoodstock? I'm sure you probably had to take a break with COVID, but will there be an event this year? Yes, it is. It'll be July 31st. Ah, great, great. How has the city and the and your neighbors reacted to having a music venue in what I'm assuming is like a residential area? Um, knock on wood, we've been really fortunate. But what I do is I literally go door to door and I do it every single year and I knock on everyone's door and I thank them, you know, for their past understanding. (laughs) I let them know that the event is coming up. I I thank them for um, putting up with the extra cars and, um, and I thank them for, you know, understanding and not calling them the police. <laughs> and, um, and then I also invite them to the event, you know, um, as our guests, you know, if there's a neighbor, so they get a special neighbor's pass. 
And I have many neighbors who take me up on it. And because I do it every year, you know, it's fun. I meet the new people who've moved into the neighborhood and they don't, so they don't know about it. Um, otherwise, I see people that I don't always see and they'll open their door and they'll be like, oh, it must be Hoodstock. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah, yeah, here's your flyer. <laughs> and thank you very much. And they're like, yeah, you know, we're, we're actually thinking about coming this year. We were out of town last year, but yeah. You know, and so I get, I get to see who my neighbors are, um, reconnect with them. And I've had many of them, um, when I didn't do it, people asked me to, um, to not stop, asked why I didn't do it. Or, and, and I had a lot of expressions of how happy it made them and how they felt it was important and that it brought the community together. So... Yeah, you know what's interesting? Like the I mentioned that Seattle is uh, the place that most people think of, like the birthplace of grunge music. And a band that maybe you know of that I had never known of was called, I believe, Bam Bam, fronted by. Oh yeah, they're from here. Fronted they, by they, Tina Bell. Um, yes. Um, what is her name? Tina um, Bell, I think. She's passed away, but. Um, Oh, shoot. They just did an article and mentioned this. It's uh, um, Tina Bell, right? Sorry? Tina Bell? Yes, Tina Bell. Thank you. Um, So, yes, I had heard of them. I was aware of them. Um, And that was, they were like the first. That was pretty early. I mean, because that was literally the 80s. The late, I believe it was the late 80s, early 90s. Um, I know she, that it's back there a little bit. Um, but yeah, she was, she was amazing. And, and, you know, and, um, and they did make a name for themselves. People were definitely aware of them. And, and um, yeah, she was, um, she was out there. She was doing it. And, uh and it's funny because they often get forgotten in, in the history of of the music. That you know that there was this band with a really fierce black woman fronting, and you know, and they were you know a punk rock band that was amazing. Fishbone out of California, definitely punk rock. Um, we got to open for them and and play with them, and whoa, I mean just. I remember being um, hip to them back when I was a, you know, a teenager, early 20s, and uh, and just thinking that they were, you know, that it was just really awesome and new and different and, you know, what is this? <laughs> yeah, you know, the, the most recognizable faces from the grunge movement in Seattle or, or people like Kurt Cobain or, or Chris Cornell, they're, yeah. yeah, they're, they're white dudes wearing flannel. And I'm honestly yeah. like, and they're both passed away too. <laughs> right. But I'm honestly kind of ashamed that like, I didn't, I had never heard of Bam Bam and she's, she's widely considered like the, the godmother of grunge music from that area. Yeah. Um, so, I, you know, something that people are, are tuned into now more is the idea of representation. Do you think that the that Hoodstock and the MLK House offered a space for a diverse range of people that maybe they didn't have prior to that? Um, yes. As of late, we've um, discovered and focused a lot more on bands of color or um, and then LGBTQ bands you know, more marginalized groups. And that's um, been really what's been awesome because then out of that, just some amazing groups have been discovered and seen um, and have had, an you know, an exposure and an opportunity to be seen or, you know, by people that normally would not see them. How has the scene in Seattle changed through the years? Um, you know, in New York, more and more we're having high rises built up and more and more people are priced out. And some of like the classic 
punk neighborhoods are, <laughs> you know, we, we saw this in Anthony Bourdain's show in the Lower East Side. They're turning into Target. They're turning into Whole Foods. But this scene is really adaptive, I think. And there are venues that continuously pop up in new places and some close due to high rents. But it's almost like that game Whack-A-Mole. You, you hit the one slot and it pops up somewhere else and it keeps on thriving. Of of what I know and have heard about Seattle, like there's been a tech boom there and I'm assuming with a tech boom, there's rising prices. How have you seen that affect the music scene there? Oh, horribly. I mean, there's been a lot of venues that, that have had to close. A lot of great art places, um, um, spaces, artists, lofts and things. I mean, there's there's been a lot of closure, a lot of different clubs, have closed, you know, and then even not to mention with the pandemic. So the, I think the music scene has been really hard hit, um, here. Um, you know, Seattle has been and continues to be one of the fastest growing cities. So, you know, people are definitely priced out. Our homelessness is out of, you know, out of control. And, um, so yeah, our our city has taken a hit. It's not as beautiful as it used to be. Um, the homeless homelessness is just really sad and depressing. And uh, um, you know, a lot of people are hit, and it definitely has affected the music in a positive way, as well as a negative way. Hmm. I think the music that you hear people creating is really powerful and definitely socially oriented. Um, but it's just become a lot harder for people to um, come together to create music. Yeah, I was going to ask because it seems like Seattle throughout the years has been a place that is really socially conscious maybe. Um, gosh, was it in the in the 80s? There were like the what was it, the G7 or the Global Summit protests? Um, mm -hmm. There's a lot of protest music that comes out of there. What do you think it is about the city that has sort of fostered this, like, rebellious spirit and this artistic creativity? Well, I, I actually think a lot of it is environment, you know, because, like I said, we were for a long time, Mayberry with skyscrapers, but the woods, the forests, the mountains... The farms, all of that is just a hop, skip, and jump away. I mean, you drive anywhere for 15 minutes, 10 minutes in one direction, and you're out in, in the wilderness. And so that um, creates, um, you know, it, um, uh, artistic environment. I mean, getting in touch with nature, you know, it, it just, I think it really makes you just feel creative here. The water, the beautiful mountains. Um, it's it's very picturesque, you know, our nature, um, and I think that um, inspires creativity. Would you consider Night Train to be a political band? We definitely, um, some of our songs definitely are socially aware and and commentary. Hmm. I wouldn't call us necessarily a political band. We just speak um, our truths at the moment. Yeah, so, so socially conscious, but to the experiences that you've experienced in your lives. Right. And then we do like to be fun and funny. I mean, we have some some silly songs, I think, too, or what people, you know, what one might consider silly. Did you tour much outside of the Washington area? We did. We... Um, our first tour was the West Coast and back, and then we went to, I think we, the second time we did like Idaho, Montana, and then flew to South By. And then we, our last tour, we toured from here all the way to South By and back. Oh, wow. Where is your favorite place to play outside of Seattle? Um, Portland. Portland is always fun. 
Vegas. I did. We did have fun in, um, playing in Vegas, um, just because it was it was the Double Down, and it's such a scary bar, and reputation of being a you know old school bikers bar, and they're just like slightly off the strip, but not so far off that they're they're packed all the time. But this place is so wild that you literally have to perform in a cage behind glass. Whoa. (laughs) I'm ashamed to say I've never heard of, heard of that bar either. Wow. The double down. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, it's a well-known rocker bar in Vegas. (laughs) Anyone who's touring and, and if you're a rock band, you probably have gone to the double down. Isn't that what it was called Maria? That's where they had that ass. That was the place where they had the ass punch, or um, yeah, I think it was called ass punch. <laughs> oh, there's there's a place and you break it. <laughs> there's a place in New York City called the Double Down that has something called ass juice. Yeah, yeah, ass juice. Yeah, it's probably maybe they're affiliated. Oh, okay. That's what it was called. There was ass juice. So did that get? Cra- and it was like. Did that get crazy when you played there? Say that again. Was it crazy when you played there? Were people going wild? It was. And what made it crazy was just the, it was so diverse. I mean, you, you had your hardcore punk rockers who just wanted to thrash and so forth in the middle of the floor. You had old grizzly bearded bikers who just stood with whiskey or whatever and looked like stay away from me you had grandma and grandpa tourists who was just like where are we (laughs) (laughs) i mean you had teen you had uh college frat youngins you had um um working people showgirls who just got off work or whatever and just wanted to come in there and have a drink i mean you had everything in there it was that was what made it even more weird and even more difficult to like reach the audience because it's so different and so varied. Um, but we had a good time in that place. Yeah, that we sounds did. that sounds amazing. And we and it was actually a good show for us. Cool. Wow. I think people were just amazed to see you know four women of color playing their instrument. You know. And, and singing. Were you nervous at all? No, we were so excited about being <laughs> in Vegas. <laughs> we were tired, though. After we played that gig, we couldn't party or... We were so tired. Did you ever play New York? We never made it all the way to the East Coast. Were were you um, also doing comedy at the same time that you were playing music? No, I did comedy. I, I was a stand-up first. And then from that, I sort of went into improv theater um, and was working with Unexpected Productions, and, which then is why that led me into this concept show because there was a big improv aspect to it. We had to learn and make everything up as we went. We were writing our own music. And and so they did say, for the auditions, they wanted you to have an improv background. Um, they wanted you to be familiar with music, but not be a musician. Um, and then they just wanted you to be open for a ride. Ah, I see, I see. When you were performing comedy, did you ever play New York? Yes, I did. Where, where were you? I did. I was at Caroline's. Oh, wow. I did um, the Laugh. Is it Laugh Factory? Is that there? Um, I, 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 did a, um, I did this gangster bar in, on, um, was it uh, Coney Island? Really? Um, I did, I ha- I played like three shows a day cause you had to, and I was there for 10 days. So I did every, every 
bar every stage that they had. Um, I even went a little upstate. So, is any are any of those performances documented? Or is there a way that people can see that? I don't know. I know one of the shows that I did was for um, um, BET um, when they were doing. It was the um, Def Jam. Thank you. <laughs> so I did. I did do one of those shows that was taped. I heard that it had aired because I would have people say, "Oh my God, we saw your show." But I never saw it, <laughs> and I always missed it, and, and people would tell me, and then they never sent me a copy of it. Wow. So you are um, a real Renaissance woman. You're very prolific in the arts. You've done a lot of things. Thank you. I have. Uh, let me ask about Night Train for a second. So did you released like two full albums and like a single record? We did like... I believe we did two EPs and then two full C, full CD, you know, like 12 songs. And what is the status of the band? Because I know you stopped for a bit and you did a reunion of sorts. Is there, are there more shows in the works? No, not at the moment. Um, part of the reason why we stopped is, you know, um, like our guitarist wanted to have a family. And so she since has gotten married and, has a baby, <laughs> you know, so, um, and then our singer, um, needed to take care of her father who, um, is elderly. He's healthy and everything, but he's in California. She's here and, um, you know, and he's in his eighties. So she wanted to be near him and, um, he was living alone and, um, me, myself, I have children and family um, so it was just realizing that this started, it started, we started out as a concept band that was just supposed to be for fun. And we went further and bigger than we ever had in anticipated. And we did, we were at a point where, um, people were, you know, offering us bigger and better deals. And it was about, okay, are we, are we, are we really going to just go for it and do this as for a living? You know, cause it couldn't be a hobby anymore. We were, we were working a lot and, um, yeah, had a manager and it just, you know, things sort of took off for us by accident. <laughs> what do your, uh, your kids think of mom uh, playing in a punk band? Um, my kids, well, they work Hoodstock, so they think, you know, they work Hoodstock. Oh, they cool. didn't care so much about, um, you know, me being in a band because I've always been an entertainer. Um, my, it's my grandchildren who really thought they could soften. them. <laughs> oh, wow. Um, what is the, the status of the house? You said that Hoodstock's happening this year, but are you still running other yeah. shows there? Um, I would run not very often. Um, our signature shows is Hoodstock, and then we have a show that we would do in December between the change of the new year, and it was called Hair of the Dog. Mm. And that had rang almost concurrently with Hoodstock for as many years. But um, And then otherwise, we did do where we would allow people to do shows here, um, but then that just got to be a little more difficult um, when you're not controlling, when you're not controlling everything. So, um, no, I mean, because it is our home and I have to, you know, there's work that needs to be done on the house. And, you know, so um, it takes about two weeks to get Hoodstock up and running in terms of phys physically because we build a stage and all of that. And then it takes almost a month to, to get everything back down and the house back to normal. So it really takes a lot out of us. Has anybody ever thought to do like a documentary of sorts or to, to document the fest? 
Yeah, I've had a couple of attempts at a documentary. One, though, you know, and it's always about money. Can I afford to executive produce? <laughs> I was like, yeah, what? Just a working girl. <laughs> so, yes, there's been asks. There's been, um, um, we've even had <clears throat> a couple of film, you know, some filming done, but it always boils down to, meh, 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 meh seems to peter out and always be about money or something. Yeah, I mean, the reason I ask is one of the reasons I love doing these regional episodes is, you know, like I mentioned before, more and more you see venues disappearing. And like my version of a dystopian future, one aspect of it is that like we we lose out on the history of a lot of these places that were so important to local and regional scenes. Um, there was a, a venue in, in Alabama called Cave Nine that I was fortunate enough to go to, and it was so cool, and they, they did a little documentary on that. So in my small way, you know, I'm, I'm hoping in, in 20, 30 years these, these podcasts are still out in the, in the grid somewhere and, and people will be able to, to hear about a place that hopefully is still running but, but maybe not, might not exist that far into the future. So... I, it sounds to me like the fest and the house are really important to people in the local community there um, who are looking for an artistic outlet and are into punk music. So that sounds important to me as well. So it, I'm, I'm happy to be able to, to share your story. And it is, my house is situated on a double lot. So we have like a, a full lot as a backyard so we can get between building the stage. We have a little beer garden. We have, um, um, the food that we, um, build a platform coming out of the house. I have a nice little deck that tears down several levels. So everything is cooked right there in front of people. And then we can just serve off of this deck and it's, you know, and so it's a nice natural barrier. Um, um, and then there's uh, room for people to dance and then sit in lawn chairs and just sit back and listen or sit on the grass or whatever. So it, it's a nice little setup. It definitely is more intimate. I think, you know, cozy. Um, I think we, we we usually get about 300 people. Whoa. Yeah. Are any of those bands touring bands or they're all local to Seattle? They usually start touring. <laughs> wow. Yeah. It's probably always hard when I ask people to like off the cuff list things. So if this is hard, um, you know, we don't have to. But are there any bands from your area uh, or bands that you think have not had as much exposure that people should be checking out? Um, sure. There's... Uh the Black Tones, they've been doing very well. Um, and I know they haven't toured a whole lot, but they have made a big name here and opening for some of the bigger acts that come into town. Bear Axe, like rare bear and then an axe. <laughs> um, and both of these bands are fronted by um, Black women. Bear Axe. Sheena is her name, and, um, the lead singer, and she ha is real powerful. Both of these bands are strong rock bands, um, and I think they're going to go places. They just had a, a nice article written on them. Um, there's King Youngblood. I think he's going to be doing really well. Um, he's got a he's got a manager and agent, and they're, I mean, they're just pure entertainment, pure rock, um, and fun. They're fun to watch. Um, they're, they're very inviting in their music. Um, so yeah. Yeah. That's any denial. <laughs> that's great because I'm going to, so I'll have a, a night train song in here but maybe also I'll have a couple other songs from some local folks so, so people can hear those in addition to hearing this conversation with you. Well, cool. 
Thank you, Selena. Um, again, it's been an honor to talk Thank to you. you, and it's an honor to to share your story. This seems like a really important musical niche in uh, Seattle, and uh, I'm really glad to to be able to do this. So thanks. Thank you for reaching out. It was really nice talking to you too. Hey, Voyagers, that is a wrap on episode 231 of the Voyages of Tim Better podcast. Thanks so much, Selena, for joining me in this conversation. I had a great time talking to you. I hope you all learned some stuff about the Seattle scene. You can check out Night Train's Bandcamp where they have all their stuff for purchase and they also have some merch. And I'll link to all of their stuff, their Facebook, Instagram. I'll link to Hoodstock. If you're in the area, go to it. (laughs) Say hi from me. I'm going to be away this summer, so I'm not going to be out in that part of the world. But check it out. It sounds awesome. I'm jealous. I want to be there. Okay, on our way out here, I'm going to play you a song by Bear Axe. That is one of those bands that you just heard Selena mention from her area that she thought you should all know about. They also have a band camp, and I think they've got merch too. Yep, they have merch, so please support them. This song, which one am I going to play? All right, I'm going to play By, B-Y-E, By You by Bear Axe. And this is where I will sign off. Thank you, Voyagers. Thank you for always tuning in. You guys are the best. Lots and lots of more stuff coming this, uh, this summer, so stay tuned. All right, see you later. And please, please, please take care of each other.